Welcome to My Bible Study, a verse-by-verse devotional study through the Bible with Pastor Bob Thibodeau. In this unique series, Pastor Bob takes you through the Bible just a few verses at a time. No preaching, just a simple Bible reading with examples and explanations of the meaning behind the scriptures. My Bible study will take you from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the book of Revelation. Now, here is Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Hello everyone everywhere, this is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to My Bible Study. Glory to God, we're so glad you're joining us today. We are blessed each and every time we can gather together around the Word of God. It means so much to your spirit when you actually study what God has to say and not listen to what man has to say. Amen. And that's our prayer as we go through this, that the Holy Spirit be speaking through me, through his word, through me to you to encourage you, to give you hope, to share the word of God, that the the life of God could come to you and give life to your spirit, man. Now, God promised to make Abram's name great. He goes, I will make your name great. This must stand out in context. Okay, we have to understand this. Genesis chapter 11 that we studied before tells the story of how people sought to make their own name great. They cried out and said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us build ourselves a tower that reaches to heaven. Let us make our name great ourselves and not be scattered across the face of the earth in obedience to God. Right? And then they built the Tower of Babel. People tried to make a name for themselves. And God just, nope, that is not going to happen on my watch type thing. Right? He could messed it all up by confounding their language. However, in Abraham's case, God says, I will make your name great. While Abraham lived in land, he became very wealthy, didn't he? He was treated like a great prince by the Canaanites. And you'll see that in Genesis 23. And his name is still revered today among the Arab nations and the, the Jewish nations and the Christian nations, all three religions, the major religions. He's revered by the Jews, the Muslims, and the Christians. His name is truly great. In fact, the first temptation of man was what? To be like God. To have God's glory. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so they could be like God. God disciplined them for it. However, Abraham wasn't seeking that. He he did not seek his own glory. And because of that, God promised to exalt him. You know, this principle still works today, folks. The world pursues greatness. Each person pursues a name for him or herself through their education, through their wealth, through their strength, right? The bodybuilders that want to be Mr. and Mrs. America type thing. Popularity, you know, I want to be a pop singer and I want tens of thousands of people to come listen to me sing. And and I want all of that. Each religion in the same way teaches people to try to save themselves through doing good works, right? However, God opposes the proud, and he exalts the humble. He rejects those who come to him based on their works, but accepts them who come to him like little children, not trusting in their own ability, not trusting in their own works, just trusting in the work of Jesus. 
Amen. He rejects those who, who try to gain the world. But he gives the world and all of the riches in the world to the meek, Matthew 5 says. Those who will not fight to try and claw their way to the top, he lifts to the top. The world and the heavens can be theirs. In a sense, their names are truly great because their names will forever be associated with God. And God will exalt them. They'll be married to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords throughout all of eternity, praise the Lord. Then God also promised to make him a blessing. Not only would he be exalted, not only would he be blessed, but he himself would be a blessing. You have to understand that God blessed Abraham not primarily for Abraham's enjoyment, but so that he could be a blessing to other people as well. Abraham blessed those in Canaan. Early on, he won a battle against the kings of the east who, who formerly oppressed the kings of Canaan. And then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, you know, we, we studied this back when we studied the sons of Noah, it's believed he was Shem, right? Looking, he's old, and he realized, you know, Noah had blessed him. He had the blessing, it was evident, because everything he had was blessed. But he's looking around, and nobody is serving the same God he is. And then he hears about one of his great-great-great-great-great-grandsons who is serving the same God he is and just went out with a handful of people and defeated three major armies. And he said, that is definitely God's blessing at work. So he comes down. The king came to see Abraham, right, or Abram. And, you know, we know the story, right? Uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, blessed him for it. When he blessed Abraham, he transferred that blessing that Noah, God gave Noah and that Noah gave Shem. He transferred that blessing to Abraham or Abram. And Abram blessed the Canaanites. But ultimately, he blessed them by being a witness of the living God. Amen. Psalms 1 uh, verse 3 describes the man who's blessed by God as a tree that produces fruit in season. A tree does not bear fruit by itself. Think about it, right? You never see an apple tree eat their own fruit. It doesn't happen. God made trees to bless others with fruit. The ground nourishes the tree. The tree nourishes the people. The people can nourish each other and together they can go ahead and plant more trees to be a blessing to more people. Amen. The same way God prospers the obedient people. He blesses them so they can be a blessing to others. During their trials, he strengthens them. He delivers them and builds up their faith so they can strengthen and help others that may not be as strong in faith as they are. 2 Corinthians 1.4, Paul says, He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the same comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Amen? In addition, God often blesses the obedient financially so they can be channels of his blessing to those who are less off financially. He pours out his financial blessings into our lives so that 
we can be poured into the kingdom of God and bless other people's lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10 says this about those who are obedient givers. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and provides bread for food will also supply and increase your storehouse of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Folks, it's all about the harvest. And we're not talking about a harvest of fruit or a harvest of grain. We are talking about a harvest of souls. That's what we should be focused on. And if God needs you to be a multi-billionaire to do it, and you're obedient to him in the little things he tells you to do, you will be a multi-billionaire. If God says you don't need a billion dollars, because I know what it's going to do to you, I just want you to have this $50,000 a year a job, be content with it, but you can bless so many people off that tithe. Because he provides seed to the sower and food for the eater, and he blesses the work of your hands and enlarges your harvest of righteousness. Not every, you know, the scripture says in a house there are many vessels, some silver, gold, some wood, clay, right? And it says if a man will deliver himself from these, he'll be made into vessels worthy. For our, so a lot of people look down. Well, the, the vessels of clay and all that, that's, uh, that's the unsaved. That's the, that's the ones, you know, that... The, they use the restroom in and take it out and dump it and, you know, all that. And you've you got to deliver yourself from that so you become a vessel of gold and silver. No, it says in a house there's many vessels. In God's kingdom, there are many people. you got those who are, you know, we'll just use the ancient Israels as an example. God made rulers over ten, over hundreds, over thousands, over ten thousands, right? Someone... I'll use the military as an example because that's what I'm so familiar with and, and you'll be able to relate to it. Going in the military as a buck private, an E1, you know nothing. You know, you're spending your first few months in basic training learning what? The basics. Then you go to your advanced individual training for the next several months and you're just learning now the basics of your job, right? The first few months was basics and how the Army operates. Now you're learning the basics of your job. When you go to your unit, you're still, you might, you might be an E2, possibly an E3 by that time. And they're not going to say, okay, uh, private so-and-so, you're going to be in charge of these 27 people, and you are going to be in charge of this $600 million radar system, and you're going to be held responsible making sure that the wartime mission is accomplished. And you're going to be, you have no clue what to do. They don't do that. God doesn't do that. In the military, they will take you as a private and you've got the basics down. Now you're going to learn how to work as a team with the other platoons. And you're going to learn how the systems operate. You're going to learn what, you know, the, the company, you know, demands of you and expects of you. And then you're going to, learn how to you know, work as a team. And if you're doing well as a team, they see you developing as a leader of your little five-man crew there. You become a crew chief over time. And now maybe they promote you to corporal or E4. Now you're a crew chief over those five. And these five are 
new people just coming to the unit, right? You've been there seven, eight months. You know the ropes. You know what's going on. The new people come in and, okay, I'm going to train you to do what they taught me to do, right? And then maybe go to another unit. Now you've got a couple of years experience, okay? We're going to make you a sergeant now. Now you've got two or three crews that you're supervising, with one of those E4s in charge of each one of all those privates underneath. And over the course of you know, a, you know, 10 years or so, you become a platoon sergeant. You've got several of these sections now working for you. A few years later, you might be a first sergeant. You've got different platoons happening. Then you become a sergeant major. But they never take a private freshly out of basic training and put him in charge of something that is just going to swamp him. The same thing happens in the kingdom of God. You're not going to be, I'm getting born again. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I got born again last Sunday at church. And God says, now I'm going to put you in charge of a worldwide national revival where hundreds and thousands of pastors are going to seek out your advice. And, and you don't even know how to find the book of Esther in, in the Bible or Haggai. You know, uh, Turn to Second Hezekiah. And you're sitting there looking at it. You know, for those of you that just heard me and you're trying to find Hezekiah, there is no book of Hezekiah. That's the point I'm trying to make. Okay. Anyway, this is all an example about the vessels in a house. right? Some are destined to stay as clay pots. What do you put in a clay pot? Well, it could be flowers, Right? It could, you'd be a flower vase, blessing people with beauty as they come in, right? A greeter at the door in your church, you know? So there are in a house many different types of vessels. You got the gold and the silver. These are the important ones that people desire to attain to their level of, of spirituality. Then wood, stone, uh, you know, clay, you know, you're still being used by God in the house, that's the point that I believe the Bible is trying to make. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower, bread for the eater, also supplies and increases your storage of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. In Psalms 37, the Bible says, I was young, now I'm old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They always have generous and lend freely their children will be blessed. God blesses the obedient so they can be generous and give freely. That's the whole purpose. They widely distribute not just their own financial seed, but their spiritual seed in order to bless other people. Are you willing to obey God and receive his blessings so you can be a blessing to others? What are you sowing today? What are you giving someone today? Is it your time? Great. Is it words of encouragement? Great. Or are you complaining all the time? You're just going to work, staying by yourself. Someone comes around to you, and then you're wondering why nobody likes you. Nobody wants to talk with you. I try to share my faith. They don't want to hear it. That's because of the attitude you're sowing. What you sow, you'll reap also. Oh, don't shut me down when I'm preaching good. Glory to God. God's promise to bless those who bless Abraham. And he also promised to curse those who curse Abraham. 
I'll bless those that bless you, curse those who curse you. God also promised to bless those or curse those as they relate to Abraham. We see this several times in the Abraham narratives. When he goes down to Egypt, Pharaoh takes Sarah as his own wife into his own harem. And God curses Pharaoh's household with sickness. Afterward, Pharaoh gives Abraham his wife back, along with a lot of wealth. All right, Genesis 12 talks about that. Similarly, when Abraham takes Sarah as a wife, God cursed him. When Abimelech takes him as his wife, God cursed him, Genesis 20. Then Abraham's wife was returned with what? A lot more wealth once again. God always protected Abraham. He even protected Sarai, right? Because it said, I, I didn't go into her. I did not have sex with her. You know, I knew this was this something wasn't right. And Abraham or God told Pharaoh, that's right. I would not allow you to do that. In other words, God's the one who put it in his heart, like, I'm not going to do that right now. He was protecting both uh, Sarai, protecting Abraham, and protecting the king, right? He blessed those who blessed him. When the kings blessed Abraham, they were blessed in return. Those who cursed Abraham ended up in trouble with God too. It also seems the promises passed on to Israel, who is Abraham's what? Children. Right? With that said, we see uh, this general promise uh, reiterated throughout Scripture to those who faithfully obey God. Jesus said people should be careful of how they treat his little ones, those who believe in him. We already explained that. If we offend them, it'd be better for us if a millstone was hung around our neck and we'd be tossed into the sea, Jesus said. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. He also said in Matthew 18, to not look down on them, for their angels are always, what? Seeing the face of God. Their guardian angels are in direct communication with God. And they are ready to move on a moment's notice at God's command on behalf of the little ones. Similarly, Romans 12 verse 19 says to believers, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's my to avenge. I will repay, saith the Lord. And considering God's blessing, Scripture also says that even a bottle of water given to someone to drink will be rewarded. Hallelujah. It doesn't have to be money. It can be whatever you have. As we follow God's call, he promises to bless those who bless us and curse those who curse us. We have the same blessings as Abraham. God promised that all the people of the earth would be blessed through him, through Abraham. This is the most precious promise that was given to Abraham. And it's the key verse in redemptive history. God promised to bless all of the people of the earth through Abraham. How, how can God do that? Well, the primary way was by sending Jesus through Abraham's lineage. The Messiah would be both divine and human at the same time. He would die for the sins of the world and then raise himself from the dead on the third day. Jesus is a blessing to all the people of the earth, even if they're not a believer, because we are blessed so we can be a blessing. Amen. Oh, somebody just got that. Yeah, this is true because he's the only way to salvation. There's no other way for any person 
to have eternal life except through Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And that's it. That's settled. I don't care what religion says they're wrong. It's only through Jesus Christ. And now, that should remind us This should be true about us in one sense as well. God's calling for us is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. That's our calling. This is done directly through the gospel and indirectly by living the gospel. People should be able to see Jesus in you and you living for Jesus. You can't be a Christian in word only. You cannot be a Christian just because you say you are. There has to be a change on the inside. People, when I got born again and gave my life to Christ, before I was called in the ministry, I met some people that I used to party with and all that, and I just wasn't into it anymore. I said, man, you've changed. They noticed the change. I noticed the change. Because the old things that I used to enjoy, I just did not enjoy anymore. You know, Kenneth Hagin Sr. once had a woman come up to him. He says, I want to receive Jesus as Savior. He says, okay, let's pray. He goes, but I'm a dancer. I like going out. I like dancing. And he goes, God didn't say you can't dance. A lot of people dance for the Lord. He goes, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, you do it as much as you enjoy it. He goes, okay. So she received Jesus as her Savior, and, one, and his prayer was, Lord, let her dance as much as she enjoys it. And then she went on. She came back a couple weeks later, and she goes, you sly dog. He goes, what? He goes, I don't enjoy dancing anymore. <laughs> Remember the prayer. He goes, let her, in, let her dance as long as she enjoys it. Well, God took the joy away from her dancing. That's what I'm saying. You, you, when you live for him, old things pass away, and all things become new. Hallelujah. Peter, First Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They can see what you do. They can see you're living for God, and they will not be able to deny it. The reason pagans will glorify God on the day of the Lord is because they came to know Christ through us. Amen. This is part of God's calling on every believer's life. As we consider the seven promises given to Abraham, we have to remember that God also gave us that many promises and many more. By one person's count, the Bible contains over 3,000 promises. 3,000 promises God gave to us. 2 Peter 1 Verse 3 and 4 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and His own goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, through the promises, you may participate in His divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. Praise God. That's a powerful verse. God gave us great and precious promises 
through which we can participate in the divine nature and escape all of the world's corruption. Essentially, this means that the promises in Scripture are given to make us holy and deliver us from sin. That's what the Bible does. Hallelujah. Sadly, many Christians do not believe they're true. They don't study the promises of God. While Abraham was in Canaan being tempted to be like those around him, he had to remember the great promises God gave him. That's why God told him, look at the sand. If you count that, that's how many children you're going to be. Look at the stars. You count that, that's how many your descendants are going to be. He didn't have the Bible. He couldn't go. What did God say in Second uh, Chronicles? No, that wasn't written yet. God had to give them those physical things to remind him on a daily basis. You know, you're supposed to study God's word, meditate on his scriptures day and night. We just read day and night. Well, for the daytime, as Abraham's walking around the desert, he's seen the sand, and every time he sees the sand, he realized, that's how many descendants I'm going to have. At nighttime, when he's sitting in the cool day before he goes to bed, he's looking up at that. And remember, there was no lights to drown out the, 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 the sky. So he's sitting out there, and he's looking up at all those beautiful stars, and says, that's how many descendants I'm going to have. He is meditating day and night on the promises of God. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, in the same way, God has given us great and precious promises which apply to our calling as well. And you have to memorize those promises. Quote them. You know, not every promise is applicable to you personally. Now, they're all generally applied to us, but there are some that apply to us personally. And those are the ones you have to memorize and you have to cling to them, especially when you're being tempted or in a trial. Amen. Finally, God's call is to a pilgrimage. Man, we're already running out of time. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord. He built the altar as memorial. That's the purpose in it. Uh, and from there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel, pitched his tent there. And there he built another altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev. Uh, this is all Genesis uh, verse 6 through 9. Okay. Another aspect of God's calling on Abraham's life and also on ours is a calling to travel, a calling to pilgrimage. We see this in Abraham's life as he goes to the promised land and lives in tents. In fact, the only land that Abraham owned while in the land was his wife's gravesite in Genesis 23. Even though he became wealthy, he lived and dwelt in tents as a foreigner and a traveler in the land. Hebrews 11, 9, 10 again says this about Abraham. By faith he made his home in the promised land, living like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promises. And for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. This is true for us today. We are pilgrims in this earth. That doesn't mean we're wanderers. A pilgrim's not a wanderer. A pilgrim is a person on a journey, seeking a land. America was settled by who? The pilgrims. Leaving their home country, seeking a land where they could have religious freedom. In the same way, Christians today are pilgrims in the world today. The world's not our home, praise God. 
just like Abraham, we should not settle for this world. We see this pilgrim analogy used throughout Scripture. Think about Peter, how he used it in his letter. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts and which war against the soul. In 1 Peter, these Christians were forced to leave their homes and leave their lands because of Roman persecution. It was clear to them that earth was not their home and they were called to live for another land, a heavenly land, just like Abraham. As pilgrims on this earth, we should not store up treasures on this earth, but instead store them up in heaven. How do you take things here and transfer them to heaven? I'm glad you asked. Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust does destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said we should not store up treasures on this earth, but store them up in heaven. When I go to a hotel, I don't spend a lot of time trying to make the place my home. I don't buy new curtains and bedspreads or a stereo system. Why? Because my stay at the hotel is temporary, right? Jesus used similar logic. He says the treasures of this earth are temporary. They're going to be destroyed. They don't belong to you anyway. Our life is but a breath on this earth. We must spend our lives focused on the eternal life. Therefore, as Christians, our lives, our belongings, should look very different from the world because we're not storing up treasures on earth. We are simply preparing and waiting for our eternal home. We are pilgrims in this earth. Abraham lived that way, even though he was wealthy. because I mean, he could have built a home. He had a lot of stuff. He could have built a permanent home, but he didn't because heaven was his ultimate destination. As pilgrims on this earth, we will never feel completely comfortable. If we are truly pilgrims and this is not our home, then we will never completely feel comfortable where we're at. How can we feel comfortable with the temporary if we are made for the eternal? You can't. How can we feel comfortable in sin, in a sin-infested society, if we're made to live and dwell in his righteousness? How can we feel comfortable in a loveless society when we are made to dwell in perfect love? As pilgrims, we'll constantly feel dissatisfaction with this world as it is. Paul described it this way in Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. It pains us to see what's going on. This is not a groaning that the world can understand. It's only a groaning that true Christians will have. We groan for the redemption of our bodies. We long to be free of sin and pain and, and, and all of that. It's a groaning that's particular to pilgrims. And this world will never be completely comfortable. It's not our home. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. As pilgrims on this earth, we will constantly be strange and sometimes persecuted. 
First Peter 4 says they, they think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation that they heap, and so they heap abuse on you. The world will find you strange, but that's okay. I think they're strange, right? Because you don't have the same values. You don't have the same belief systems. That's why the persecution comes right now. You don't enjoy the same things. Sometimes this will lead to severe persecution. And we shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us. Jesus said the world hated me first. They persecuted and killed him. We should not be surprised if the same thing happens to us. It's not uncommon for pilgrims. God's call is to a pilgrim life. It's a life of simplicity, a life of being comfortable, a life of being considered strange by others. We should not be surprised by this, but embrace it as part of his call. That's where we need to leave it for today. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you for joining Pastor Bob as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible in this series called My Bible Study. We pray this study will bring you closer to God and reveal His Word and His will for you through the Scriptures. We would consider it an honor and a blessing if you would support this outreach with your financial offerings. We have partnered with Patreon to offer you unique gifts and benefits for various levels of giving. Please visit our page on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash podcast, all one word. That link again is patreon.com forward slash podcast, all one word. Until next time, be blessed in all that you do.